From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. Business uncertainty, unprecedented events from pandemic and business lockdowns to social unrest. 2020 has been a year like no other. In part two of our podcast from the Beyond the Skyline online festival, reporter Brian Johnson speaks with an expert panel on the tumultuous legislative session and the ramifications of the bonding bill. The panelists were Rachel Robinson, Deputy Commissioner of the Minnesota Housing Finance Agency, Jessica Lumen, Executive Director of the Minnesota State Building and Construction Trades Council, Laura Ziegler, Director of Government Affairs for AGC of Minnesota, and Mary Margaret Sindrin, Executive Vice President of AIA Minnesota. The panel's wide-ranging discussion took place via Zoom on December 15th. I guess we'll just jump right in then. Thanks everybody for, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. And um, hello to everyone joining us virtually and welcome to the Beyond the Skyline Festival. And um, thanks for joining us for what I hope will be an informative and free-flowing discussion about the 2020 state bonding bill, what it means for the states, uh, for the construction industry, housing, and uh, Minnesota economy as a whole. Um, so I guess just to just to start in, you know, I guess the, the theme of this year's legislative session with regard to the bonding bill anyway could be better late than never. Um, as we know, in, in October, months after the regular legislative session adjourned, um, Governor Walz signed a record $1.9 billion public works bill during a special legislative session. Um, the bill will fund hundreds of projects across the state from transportation to housing, higher ed, water infrastructure, and just as important in the midst of a a struggling COVID-19 induced uh, economic downturn. It'll keep tradespeople and construction professionals busy with, with a wide range of projects. Um, by at least one estimate out there, the projects funded in this bill will create more than 27,500 jobs for Minnesota workers. So um, today we're pleased to be joined by, by four distinguished panelists. We'll discuss the 2020 bonding bill and, and kind of what it means for the state and the people they go to bat for. Um, so I, I wonder if we could just, I, I guess just by way of introduction, uh, panelists include Laura Ziegler, Director of Highway Heavy and Government Affairs for the Associated General Contractors of Minnesota. Um, Mary Margaret Zindrin, Executive Vice President of the American Institute of Architects Minnesota Chapter. Rachel Robinson, Deputy Commissioner of the Minnesota Housing Finance Agency. And Jessica Luman, 
Executive Director at the Minnesota State Building and Construction Trades Council. Thanks everyone for joining us. Thanks panelists. So I wonder if just to start out, if each of the panelists could just briefly introduce themselves and talk a little bit about the organization they represent. Um, I, I guess maybe since we have two people with the last name starting with Z on the panel, we'll go in uh, reverse alphabetical order. So maybe Laura, if you wouldn't mind starting just by introducing yourself and talking briefly about uh, your organization, who you represent, and uh, you know what it means to see this uh, bonding bill passed into law this year. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for the invitation. I thought Mary Margaret was maybe going to squeeze in before me, but I am used to uh, being the, the caboose, and that's just fine. Um, I serve as the Director of Government Affairs uh, for Associated General Contractors here in Minnesota. We have a little over 400 members, and we split that membership statewide uh, between uh, our highway heavy members as well as our uh, contractors in the vertical construction industry. Um, and that's primarily in commercial uh, construction. And, you know, this year was a year of persistence, um, as I think is going to be a dominant theme here in our conversation here today. And um, certainly within the construction industry, we see that. And the ups and downs associated uh, with the bonding bill this year, if it was going to pass. Um, at all, if there was going to be a bonding bill and the level of uncertainty with that. So as you said, Brian, better late than ever. Uh, got it. They got it done. And uh, you may have mentioned it was a historical investment uh, in the state. Um, over the years, we've certainly seen a, a ceiling around that $1 billion uh, mark. That was always a threshold that was difficult to overcome. Uh, so very proud of our policymakers that they were able to make the necessary investments uh, this year, not only because it was a bonding year, but of course, uh, with the current health situation, the pandemic, and that very much needed economic stimulus. So very monumental for, you know, not only the industry from the industry perspective, but of course, uh, the local communities and the entire state and the regional and state economies. Great, thank you, Laura. Uh, Mary Margaret Sindrin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so thanks so much, Brian. And, and again, thanks to all of you for the invitation to, to join the panel today. Um, I, I do lead the American Institute of Architects uh, state chapter and local chapters throughout Minnesota. We have about 2,500 members throughout the state. We're an individual membership association. Um, and uh, those individual members uh, around the state were very impacted by the pandemic and um, very positively impacted by the passage of this bonding bill. Um, as, as I think most folks in the industry realize, architecture is, is something of a canary in the coal mine. Um, we're the first place where we start to see the impacts um, uh, of both positively and negatively. And um, we were very happy to see pre-design and design projects included in this historic bonding bill. That's really important for the pipeline of projects uh, to be strong uh, and um, 
to, to keep the rest of the industry humming. Um, and uh, I was uh, thrilled when we were able to, to tell members that their, their hard work in reaching out to their legislators over months and months and months had, had paid off and the communities and clients that they serve, public and, and private sector clients, uh, uh, that, that overall they were gonna see uh, work start back up again. Um, we had had significant uh, furloughs uh, and, and layoffs within the profession. Uh, and uh, whenever there are fits and starts in public work, it has real impact on, on real jobs and the communities uh, that we're serving. So overall a good outcome, but um, a process that, that feels like it didn't have to be this way. Uh, so that's the politics of it, uh, but, but the result is, is a very positive one for everyone. Great, thank you. Thank you, Mary Margaret and uh, Rachel Robinson, uh, Minnesota Housing. Rachel, thank you for joining us. I uh, wonder if you could briefly introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about uh, Minnesota Housing Finance Agency and its mission and uh, I know there was a, a pretty significant um, funding for housing in the bonding bill. So maybe you could touch on that as well and, and, and what it means for the people you represent. Yeah, hi, I'm Rachel Robinson. I'm the deputy commissioner at Minnesota Housing. And it's good to see my fellow panelists because earlier this year we were talking about how great it would be to have a bonding bill. Um, uh, Minnesota Housing, if you're not familiar with us, we are the state's housing finance agency. We do over a billion dollars a year in housing finance for affordable housing. And that supports, of course, a lot of jobs. And one of the most unique things about Minnesota and about Minnesota Housing is that we have bonding from the state level that supports the development and preservation of affordable housing. And we call them housing infrastructure bonds. And they were new, this is a really new concept. It's actually something you still see white papers about in 2012. And the state has continued to invest year over year in increasing um, amounts into the housing infrastructure bond program because it has been so effective in leveraging other resources and in creating housing, preserving housing and, and jobs, of course. So we, um, this year started the year with uh, advocates asking for $500 million in housing infrastructure bonds, the governor asking for 200 million. And then we waited and we waited and Minnesota housing releases its huge competition for housing uh, resources, which includes quite a bit of federal money in June, uh, expects our applications come back in June. And we spend a lot of time analyzing, you know, we maybe fund one in five, two in five of the applications that come in. And we announced those awards in the, the late fall. And this actually Thursday of this week is when we announce our awards this year. So when we got the bonding uh, in October, we got 116 million that goes to housing. That's 100 million housing infrastructure bonds and 16 million to support public housing. Um, we were in the midst of finalizing our recommendations for what would go through our competition. So we did make the decision, we could have waited we could have waited until next year and just said, okay, we have a hundred million to work with next year, but we were looking at a slate of really good development projects and preservation projects, looking at a slate of developers who could get it done and get started this year or, you know, into 2021 and said, no, let's, let's move forward. Let's do our best and do something we've never done, which is to advance 
not fully baked <laughs> developments and say, yeah, we expect to make an award available to you of these housing infrastructure bonds. We will advance, it's kind of like in philanthropy, you get invited. So you are invited to keep working with us to uh, move these developments forward. And we um, hope that they happen in this next year. So it's a really big week for us in Minnesota housing because of the bonding, in addition to all the federal resources we release. Great, thank you, Rachel. And I know there's a, a lot of really worthy projects there um, that are moving forward because of this. And um, so I appreciate, uh, appreciate that. Jessica, um, good to see you again. <laughs> um, I wonder if you could just introduce yourself and uh, talk about uh, the importance of bonding uh, from the perspective of, of the people you represent and uh, the, the workers, the hard hats here in Minnesota. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. And, and thanks so much for inviting me to participate in this panel this morning. Um, sometimes we, uh, we, we have this enormous accomplishment, which was this coalition building around uh, advocacy for a bonding bill. We get the bonding bill and then we move on. And so uh, I'm really glad that we can stop and reflect on the work that we did uh, to get this bonding bill passed. Um, again, want to congratulate my uh, co-conspirators in uh, really creating this co broader coalition, uh, the AGC and AAI. A, A, there we go, you know, Mary Margaret's. <laughs> um, and um, <laughs> because again, I think one of the things that we did better this time than we've ever done before is we built this broader coalition and it wasn't just the construction industry. It wasn't just our agency partners uh, and it, it was local governments and it was um, citizens who really recognized the need for greater investment in public infrastructure. Uh, so I represent the uh, building trades workers. We represent about 70,000 union construction professionals across the state. Uh, we, like uh, Laura's folks, we represent workers that work in the vertical construction industry, which is primarily commercial and industrial, which means that we build buildings. Uh, but we also have a number of our affiliates who also represent um, highway heavy workers, uh, which includes wastewater treatment, uh, roads and bridges. And so um, of our workforce, um, just to sort of reflect where we are in this time is COVID has impacted our workforce very differently depending on where they often work and the types of construction that they often work on. The great thing about our industry is that um, it is, you take your skills with you and you have portable skills and you can move from one contract to another and one project to another. Um, but again, at the same time, when we are having a time when there isn't the private investment in uh, construction, we need to have the, the government and the public investment uh, step up to really sustain an industry uh, and to sustain the careers for uh, the workers that I represent. Um, and again, I think the other piece to really keep in mind is that um, this $1.8 billion, as Laura said, was really, really significant. It is historic in terms of the level of investment that the state has been willing to put forward in order to both help with economic recovery because of COVID, but also really to invest in Minnesota and invest in Minnesota infrastructure and Minnesota needs. Um, that said, as we know, there were about $5 billion worth of needs uh, that were uh, in, in the mix, as if you will. And so not every project could be done, not every um, program could be funded. And so we see this both as an enormous help 
um, and also a really a, a laying the groundwork for thinking about how we have sustainable long-term investment in both asset preservation, but also the safety that's necessary for safe water and uh, investment in transportation and transit. So um, we're really excited that this happened. We're really glad, I'm really glad that you invited us to have this conversation about it. Uh, because again, this is very historic for us and it is gonna make a huge difference for um, 2021 for Minnesota construction workers and going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Great, thank you, Jessica. Um, so we talked about how is, this is better late than never. Um, we were hoping to get this done maybe in May and here was in later mid-June, or sorry, October, where it finally was uh, signed by the governor and uh, in one of the many special sessions we had. I wonder if, uh, I'm, I'm not sure who wants to jump in on this first, but I wonder, uh, I'm curious about the impact of that, the impact of having a bonding bill approved so late in the year and what that means for the timing of, of projects, of RFPs going out and things of that nature. So um, I was wondering if anyone would like to chime in on that. So I can jump in first, but then obviously Rachel just talked about sort of how they're, um, you know, maximizing the impact. Um, I think there's a couple of things we have to think about and, and there's two sides of it. Um, one is a lot of the programs that were, a lot of the projects were, were prioritized for the bonding bill that did get passed are what we call shovel ready. Uh, so those are projects that are really ready to go. Uh, so they need some addition, maybe some bidding and some those kind of letting and those kinds of things, but they're the engineer, the design, what Mary Margaret's folks do and the engineering um, has been completed on many of those projects. So those projects will get started sooner rather than later. And as you know, we have a um, commitment from uh, the Walls administration and, and Commissioner Showalter particularly to make sure that the money starts moving out as quickly as possible to get those projects started. There are also, and, and I don't want, Mary Margaret can certainly talk about this, is one of the things that we think about in the Building Jobs Coalition is sort of this spectrum of construction and how we start putting money into the pipeline of construction so that there are projects in design, engineering, development, um, and, and throughout so that we make sure that all parts of our industry um, benefit from the, the, uh, the impacts of this, of this bill. Um, but I think the downside of it is that, um, you know, and I kind of alluded to this before, and, and we were really, uh, I, I was up late last night as you were, or maybe Brian, uh, and, and certainly the rest of you watching the, um, the recovery relief bill last night at the Minnesota legislature. Um, but the truth of the matter is that construction workers were the, have made the most unemployment applications, uh, more greater than any other industry in Minnesota. And so um, while we, uh, we have about 87,000 uh, unemployment applications since uh, March, since COVID uh, came to Minnesota. And so one of the things that we're really thinking about is how do we bridge to get to the next construction season? Uh, and that's why we needed that relief bill. That's why we needed extended unemployment benefits because we really wanna be able to hit the ground running with this investment um, as soon as possible uh, this coming spring. So there's, there's, it's both. It's both good that we have got the commitment to move forward, but there also are some limitations because the projects didn't start this summer. We have to wait till next spring. Yeah, and I'll just add on to that in terms of um, pre-design and design. 
you want that work to be authorized as quickly as possible in order for the next construction cycle to really begin as soon as it can. So you need one piece to feed the next. And whenever you have a, a, a significant delay, in this case, you know, six months almost, right? Uh, and then heading into winter, you lose that time, you lose that momentum. And when um, firms need to lay off uh, workers or furlough workers on the prospect of a bonding bill, you have real inefficiencies in the system. You know, folks may uh, find another job in that time, people who had worked on that pre-design or, or, or design project. And then, you know, so those fits and starts bring in inefficiencies and raise the costs of projects. So overall, the more that this can be a consistent, you know, regular, predictable approach, the better it is for taxpayers, the better it is for our industries. Um, it just, it works better for everybody. Yeah, to keep layering on, we try to make the, at Minnesota Housing, the whole timing issue somewhat understandable and invisible to the developers and everyone on their team, but it certainly matters. We could, we've made decisions all the way since um, the pandemic started, we accepted applications for housing infrastructure bonds we didn't have. And those applications are a big deal. They take months to put together um, and there's no guarantee that we'll get the funds. So we um, made the decision to accept those applications and just kind of held out hope. We are really fortunate that um, the bonds came with enough time for us to move them forward. Um, but then there is another step, which we have the authorization for the bonds. We still need to issue bonds. And so there's a lot of work between today and Minnesota's um, currently once a year issuances so that we can um, time with the development community and winter starts, everything that increases cost in our work and make sure that we actually have the resources flowing while we also are um, accepting new applications. And if we get more bonds next year, we'll take applications for bonds next year. Thank you, Rachel. Any thoughts for to add on to what uh, the other panelists have said? Oh, I always have a few. And I would say, you know, when I saw the question, it was, well, the impact on who or the impact on what? And that's what you're hearing here today. You know, if you're talking about the impact on me, that's gonna be a different conversation because we all together at the Capitol had to make this our focus um, since, well, since the beginning of regular session, but then of course throughout the summer. And I think there was a shift, you know, in July because the reality is, is special sessions are not special anymore. Um, by definition, they are extraordinary. Uh, but I think uh, I remember a conversation back with uh, my friends in House of Representatives, their research department. And I think in the first, I, I think 50 years of statehood, there were may maybe three special sessions. And little piece of trivia there. I won't have too many of those. But my point is just a few early on, and now they are becoming more and more regular um, as, as, as time goes on. Um, and so certainly from a, a, a broader level, um, you know, for those that have been around, it, it's almost expected sometimes that there's going to be a special session um, or at least one. And so when we saw, when we knew that there was going to be more than one special session, that really changed the game. 
um, because of the extension of the emergency powers. And so we knew that they were going to be coming back every 30 days. And therefore, uh, sort of that maybe there was a, a feeling of a lack of urgency. And that's what we really uh, needed to, to keep on. And of course, that just plays hand in hand with what you're hearing and the high level of uncertainty that there was not only around the bonding bill, uh, but certainly the, the broader economy. Um, and just to pick out um, the Department of Transportation uh, with MnDOT, they were able to continue those projects that started after being declared essential. And they're going to be able to uh, issue their, their lettings and their bids on time. Uh, there were over $600 million in truck highway bonds uh, issued in this bill. And, uh, but of course that is more aligned with just the construction season uh, when it comes to uh, constructing, constructing the majority of uh, roads and bridges and other infrastructure in the state that uh, MnDOT oversees. Uh, so those are just a, a few thoughts and thinking about um, both specific and those broader impacts uh, on the state. Yeah, thanks, Laura. And you mentioned MnDOT uh, lettings. And just as a li little side note, I, I, I was looking at a recent bid letting. Um, it just seems like there's more and more competition now for, for all the jobs that are that are available. I think there was a like a $300,000 MnDOT job somewhere in Dakota County or something attracted like 14 or 15 bidders, which seems kind of crazy to me but um, just a lot of competition for, for the work that's out there. I'm curious, um, you know, maybe you can talk about this, uh, Mary Margaret, just uh, are, are you starting to see more RFPs out there now since the passage of the bonding bill or what's, uh, what's the lay of the land right now? Yeah, what, I, what we're hearing from members is that there is an uptick. Uh, there, there, there's uh, this, this sort of pause and, and almost a barrier and that barrier has fallen and, and now that pipeline is starting to flow again. Um, so, so we're very optimistic firms are, are starting to, to pick up more, at least in this space. There are obviously other areas of the industry that have been affected by the pandemic that remain slow where RFPs aren't coming. But that's really, um, that's one of the other great things about a bonding bill is that it can uh, demonstrate public confidence in the economy and spur the private sector to then follow suit. So we're hopeful that that's the next thing that happens as we start to, to see the, the private sector respond in kind and, and um, all the boats start lifting. Great. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I'm just curious, you know, as we know, the legislature usually takes action on a large bonding bill in even numbered years. I'm wondering if there's maybe a case to be made um, for a bonding bill in 2021. You mentioned some of the unmet needs out there, I think $5 billion plus worth of requests. Um, certainly some very worthy projects did not get funded. Um, can a case be made for another decent bonding bill in 2021 or will we have to wait until the 2022 session? Any thoughts? We would say yes. In 2019, there was a bonding bill, so in an off year, and that bonding bill was $60 million for housing infrastructure bonds, which have been put to use. So um, we continue to demonstrate the need. 
and the drive to use those resources. They can be used for a number of uses and a new one, which is a homeownership development as well. So the more we have, the more we can do. And it's such a great program because it's very fiscally responsible. The housing infrastructure bond leverages a ton of other um, lending and federal resources. And it you know, creates really, really good projects that are across the state. We have really good representation of the funds um, in every corner of Minnesota as well. So we certainly hope that there's an appetite to do so in 2021 because it's worked really well in off years and on years for bonding for us. I guess I would just echo the, um, the, the sentiment that <clears throat> we have certainly expressed, which is yes, we need infusion. We need a big bonding bill. We need infusion, but we also need this ongoing sustainable certainty uh, around asset preservation and other investments that we need to make on an ongoing basis. Um, and frankly, from the union construction industry perspective, you know, we need to smooth out. If we have, if we have to ramp up from a from a workforce perspective, just generally, if we have to ramp up to meet 1.8 billion dollars, and then there's no jobs for those folks um, once that bonding bill cycle has expired, or there aren't that same level of of, um, of investments available and jobs available, that doesn't do anything to help sustain a professional workforce. And so for our perspective, um, the more consistent investment that we have in construction projects, again, private as well as public investment, um, then we can meet the needs of the, uh, the construction workforce can meet the needs. We can continue to attract uh, more women, people of color, younger people into our industry because we have a promise of additional jobs going forward. So from our perspective, sustainability, consistency and an ongoing uh, approach to really investment in, in public construction is crucial. Great. Just a, a quick note on that too. I mean, the need is so great. I mean, that's even though this was a historic bill in terms of its magnitude, the need is so much greater, especially when it comes to maintenance, rehabilitation of existing uh, projects, existing buildings and infrastructure. And um, the, that, that deferred maintenance, uh, that deferred asset preservation uh, just means that those projects get more and more expensive. So the prudent, fiscally responsible thing is actually to have significant bonding bills every year that are dealing with both new and old buildings and infrastructure. That's the responsible thing to be doing. And of course, um, to sort of piggyback on Jessica Mary Margaret's comment from our members' perspective, uh, with that higher level of certainty and the need to ramp up uh, workforce um, and the numbers, of course, uh, just investments in their own uh, equipment and other capital and the predictability um, along with that. So uh, certainly that helps uh, owners make those decisions uh, to make those investments in their in their own capital as well, and that certainly has broader impacts um, in the economy. Um, the only other thing I would add, in terms of looking at at bonding bills in, in even years versus odd years, um, certainly uh, we have seen that in the past where they will pass a, a smaller uh, capital investment bill um, in terms of the overall size. 
you know, as for this year, uh, we know that the COVID-19 response is going to be top of mind and then balancing the budget. And then we also have redistricting uh, this year um, associated with that. So I, my hope is, is that legislators and, and, and just more broadly in the public will see this as part of the overall economic response. Um, to the situation that that we find ourselves in. Great, uh, thanks, Laura. I think my my Zoom crashed on me there a little bit, um, so I apologize if there's some uh, technical issues. But I guess just to to continue continue our conversation, we. You know, I think have talked about the potential of doing more of a, a, a major bonding bill, like a, a billion dollars a year um, every year versus more of a, a versus feast and famine, a large bill in an even numbered years, years in a, in a, in a smaller bill in, in the um, odd numbered years. I guess, does anyone have any additional thoughts on that and kind of what, if it might make more sense to be a little more consistent in how we approach bonding? Any take? I think we're all waiting on each other to say, <laughs> yes, consistent and significant. <laughs> That's, we're all in agreement there. Um, I, I think the other thing that's really important uh, to talk about and to realize is how dysfunctional it really is to have bonding be the last thing, bonding be the bargaining chip. And um, it, it just speaks to an overall concern about how governance is done in Minnesota. You know, to Laura's earlier point about we didn't used to have special sessions all the time. You know, we also, the bonding bill just wasn't quite the bargaining chip that it is today. Um, there was just an understanding of the responsibility to get that done, you know, on a regular basis. And, and yes, politics are played with any number of, of bills, especially those that have, you know, particular projects in particular districts. But if, if we were to think of the bonding bill as something that's, that's as essential as passing the budget, as essential as you know, ensuring that health and human services activities can continue as opposed to something that feels like dessert or a, a nice to have. This is a, a must-have for the community that need wastewater treatment facilities, that need good roads, that need, you know, those community amenities that keep the lifeblood of those economies and, and those communities flowing. Um, so there just needs to be a shift of mindset. And I don't know how that happens, but uh, uh, a shift of mindset to consistent and significant, and that this is this is part of the work of, of basic governance, not a nice to have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I just want to echo that, and and I think there's two things to think about that go right along with that sort of that sort of sort of culture shift from politically culture shift around this issue. Um, you know, this in, in state government, and, and Rachel um, certainly speaks to this as well. We can't we can't borrow money against ourselves, right? We, we can't spend money we don't have. So what we have to do is we have to leverage what we do have 
and, and go on the bond market. And so this is the most responsible fiscal tool we have uh, because we don't borrow against our future. We, well, we're borrowing, but we're, we're, not, we're not using the dollars, the tax dollars that we're anticipating to come in and spending what we don't have, having an unbalanced budget. This is a way that we can um, really take all of the fiscal responsibility that our state genuinely and historically has, 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 has used, and we can go on the bond market and we can get other people to invest in our state. And so um, I think that's a really important thing to think about that this is a, the, the, one of the best fiscal tools that we have, and it can only be used for certain things. It can only be used for capital investment. Um, and so I think to Mary Margaret's point, like we just need to think about this differently. The other challenge we have, and you know this, is that um, it does require supermajority to get these bills passed. And that is an entirely different calculus than it would be for lots of, for the budget bills, for lots of other conversations that we have. And going into 2021, obviously the, the we still have divided government in Minnesota, but the margins are, are smaller, uh, which means that we need more bipartisan work in order to continue to have these conversations. Um, I will say that this bill, bonding bill that we had, um, you know, really was the accomplishment of bipartisan cooperation and engagement. And, you know, we have great leaders, Senator Senjum just really was an amazing leader um, and uh, Representative Murphy, just both of them just passionate about making sure that this bill got done and bringing along a broad coalition of legislators to make sure that it happened. Um, but to Mary Margaret's point, we have to really think about this differently um, as that it's not a bargaining chip. It's not an end of the session. It's not a nice to have. It's a must have fiscally responsible tool to use as early as possible, consistently as possible and in a strategic and sustainable way. Thank you, Jessica. Laura, Rachel, any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, the framing from my fellow panelists is really good. I think it is important for us to remember, and I like how it's been put, that this isn't predictable. This, While this resource has continued to be available in housing since 2012, and we've really gotten pretty expert in using it, we don't have any way to know what the next year will bring. And for the development community in all of the types of housing we work on, whether they are a deep mission-oriented nonprofit or a for-profit, that they're running a business and they do spend years preparing, looking for sites, um, pulling together a team, uh, aligning with our priorities. And to come in for RFP rounds without you know, clarity or be preparing for an RFP without clarity of what resources might be there and how to align with those resources is much harder than knowing that there's uh, in our other programs, federal in particular, they're pretty consistent. You're sort of always working toward the next year's RFP for those federal resources. Whereas with the housing infrastructure bonds, it's not been that kind of predictable expected outcome where the development community can say, oh yeah, we know next year we have a good deal that would work with the housing infrastructure bonds and a reasonable expectation that that might come through. So. Um, certainly is a factor while we're really, really grateful for this resource because it works really well and it's something no other state has. Um, we have, you know, some work to do. If we had more predictable sources, that would be great. Yeah, Mary Margaret mentioned, uh, talked about dessert and I can always count on every year when I'm uh, covering a bonding bill, I'm going to get a quote from a lawmaker saying we have to have our meat and potatoes first before we can have the dessert. So 
Um, I, I appreciate that you brought that up. Um, any any additional thoughts, Laura, from you on just um, getting um, having bonding be more of a priority maybe earlier in the session rather than waiting until um, the last minute? Of course, that would be that would be the preference, and my fellow panelists have laid out all of the reasons why it, why it should be. Um, of course, uh, bonding isn't the only issue that gets left to the last minute, or in this case, went into overtime. We're also seeing it um, with uh, setting the budgets. Um, the last few years, I think we've seen bills, you know, come out at 11.30 p.m. Uh, before midnight adjournment. And uh, I know that there are leaders that are committed to uh, improving that process. And certainly this year, there's just a really big question mark because so much business is going to be conducted virtually uh, once again, whereas we saw that break and a pause um, in March and into April this year, and then try to reorganize uh, where a lot of things what fell to the wayside, whereas now we, we generally know what we're going into in terms of uh, remote hearings, at least in the House of Representatives, um, the, the Capitol is, is still closed um, to the general public uh, for the upcoming session. Uh, so certainly all of those things will, will play a factor um, into um, in a process that, you know, it's, it's sort of designed uh, to be a little messy. Um, and that's just how it goes uh, when you're trying to uh, change or, or create laws. So certainly it's not the only thing uh, that gets left um, to the third weekend um, in May. Uh, but certainly the, the earlier, uh, the better. Yeah. I could just jump in with, in, with one thing here. Is that okay? Thank you. Um, so, so Laura and I actually have a, a shared history of working for the League of Minnesota Cities. And um, so I was there for 14 years before uh, moving on to um, AIA. And back in the day on one of our legislative days, we created this button that said, good governance, you betcha. And it was, it was basically saying, you know, reinforcing that Minnesota is a good governance state. We don't have a lot of corruption here. We don't have a lot of the issues that a lot of other states do. Uh, and we have a great history of bipartisanship, the Minnesota miracle, like, you know, that, that history matters. And, uh, you know, we have the opportunity in things like thinking differently about bonding, you know, it, you know you know, for, for affordable housing, we're, we're a leader in that way, right? We could be a leader in rethinking how we do uh, bonding, how we do this kind of um, decision-making. Uh, obviously that would take different political will, different priorities than what we have right now, but we have a great history there. It would be wonderful for there to be some, some new vision of what's possible with Minnesota governance that again, sort of puts us on that, in that model territory, uh, as opposed to dragging out a, a bonding bill absolutely to the, to the last moment. Great, well said, Mary Margaret. And just, you know, in fairness to the legislature, it is, it, it, as you said, Laura, a messy process. Um, just the fact that they need the supermajority and need buy-in from both sides of the aisles, from balance uh, with projects in greater Minnesota, as well as the Metro. And 
so it, it's not an easy process. And, and, and as we've said before, um, there are a lot more requests than there is available funding. So with all that being said, I was wondering if maybe any of you have thoughts on kind of some of the projects that didn't get funded this year and maybe some of the needs that weren't adequately addressed. Uh, you know, that's kind of a kind of a big question and um, you could probably um, write a book about that, but does anyone wanna to touch on anything Would they'd like to see a little more funding um, for this particular project or this particular type of project in the next go around? So I'll just be really candid, Brian. We um, very conscientiously don't pick winner and loser projects, mm -hmm. right? We, we build things and we wanna make sure that the investment is uh, balanced um, across vertical water transportation. Um, and so that there's a lot of investment in areas. We wanna make sure that it does meet the needs of greater Minnesota. Um, and, so, and we wanna make sure that it has this spectrum of investment uh, along the entire construction spectrum. So those are sort of the criteria that we looked at in terms of advocacy. Um, and so we, we, we didn't look at specific projects. Obviously there were some projects that um, were advocated for individually by other coalition members that, that we partner with. Um, but from our perspective, from the building trades perspective, um, we wanted as large of investment as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, and that's been the position that we've taken. But I just, I really wanna thank, um, thank Laura uh, in, in particular because she really worked hard on building this broader coalition of the people who had submitted requests um, and even people who didn't get what they were asking for out of the bonding bill continue to support the passage of this really strong bonding bill. And again, I think that it speaks really highly of the work that Laura did and the Building Jobs Coalition did um, around bringing together a broader coalition of folks who recognize that we need to make these types of investments. And even if we're not in this particular project, this particular our particular project isn't in this particular bill, that um, we recognize the importance of the investment overall. Yeah, I'd go back a little since we, we are forced to pick winners and losers in housing, but to my initial comments, the advocates earlier this year were saying 500 million for housing every year. That's what we wanna see in just the housing infrastructure bonds. And um, while that's terrifying to us in terms of staff capacity and just the people we would need to administer that, that's realistic in terms of what um, particularly multifamily affordable development can happen. That is realistic for site um, acquisition for uh, pulling together the team for the number of developers of a really high quality development community in Minnesota that does great work. And so 500 million, yeah, that's a good number. It's really scary. Um, it's because it would have to come together material costs and you know there would be some shortages, but it, it's very much possible um, that every year to catch up for the need that we have in affordable housing, um, we could see that level of investment and be and realistically make it happen. Do you have any thoughts on that, Laura, as far as um, how the bonding dollars are allocated? And I know sometimes there's also debate, of course, whether to use general funds for a certain type of project or trunk highway bonds versus, versus general obligation bonds, that kind of thing. Um, any thoughts on on that um, kind of how 
how what we fund and how we fund it. Well, certainly, and wanted to acknowledge the kind comments from Jessica. Um, we were able to uh, pull together as a group and a, a number of other groups, you know, outside of this list too, were very active on the advocacy work, but over 70 organizations um, from religious organizations, watershed districts, local governments, um, all coming together under uh, this umbrella and, and carrying that message was really, really key this year. So if we wanna look at a light and the fact that we had to have five special sessions leading up to it, that would be one um, in that we were able to coalesce around, around this issue and, and get more people in, inside and, and active um, at the Capitol and sing from the same song sheet. Um, in terms of specific funding, you know, it, it's, it's also hard to say, you know, somewhat because so many of these programs were funded and weren't necessarily earmarked. So we don't even, we don't even know yet um, those specific projects that are going to get funded uh, through a competitive, you know, grant process. Um, so certainly that will need to, to play itself out in terms of timing. Uh, but that's what's also nice about a bonding bill. You know, when we, earlier when you were talking about the 20, roughly 21,000 jobs um, created through an investment like, like this, and we know it has at least a, a $3 billion economic impact, um, that's over the course of a, of a few years um, at, you know, at minimum. Uh, so that's just something I wanted to, to point out in terms of, you know, you have your direct jobs, then you have your, your indirect jobs. Uh, but in terms of, of specific types of, of bonding, of course, a lot of those are, you know, spelled out in either the constitution or in statute. Um, there are specific requirements about what these dollars can be, can be spent on. And that really is a decision uh, for our elected officials um, to make and how they want to utilize taxpayer funds. And from a transportation perspective, are you just seeing needs across the board, whether it's roads, bridges, um, uh, any kind of mass transit, uh, or, or is there more urgency for like maintenance projects versus building new bridges, or do you see any any distinction there? Well, certainly we know this just with, you know, outside of the bonding uh, question altogether, uh, just sustainable long-term funding um, th uh, through, you know, revenue sources. And of course, there's a host of questions with respect to that and the pandemic and some declining revenues. Um, that still have to sort themselves out a little bit. Uh, but certainly um, when it comes to uh, repairing a road, are you gonna do a, a, a seven to 10 year fix, maintenance fix, or are you going to rebuild um, where you're gonna get a longer life out of, out of that project, out of that work uh, for that road? So certainly um, we're seeing you know, that across the board. Um, we. I know when I hear uh, Commissioner Margaret Anderson Kelleher, MnDOT speak, um, she just, she always talks about, we just have a lot of roads. I mean, the amount of mileage that we have in this state, we're a big state. Um, so we have a lot to manage um, in terms of, 
of our of our assets. And um, I think you've seen um, some local governments like townships where they're choosing to go gravel on, on some of their roads. And that's how they're going to continue to maintain that infrastructure at a lower cost. Um, and so certainly you see those decisions playing out um, at the local level as well um, because of the partnership between uh, state and locals. Well, does anyone else have any um, additional comments on just kind of uh, what this investment means for um, the, for your constituents or, or the people you represent or the state you know, writ large? Um, I mean, I, I, I think certainly there's the, the, the stimulus aspect of, and maybe that gets into why it's, it's a shame that the bill didn't get passed sooner rather than later to um, maximize the stimulus for the, um, the COVID-19 induced economic downturn we're in. But um, I, I wonder if anyone is just interested in following up on that and just um, maybe talking a little bit more about uh, what these investments mean for the state economy as a whole, whether it's housing or transportation or, or just putting, putting more workers to work. I actually want to uh, kind of turn this in a, a slightly different um, direction. Um, you know, I, I think the other thing that is really important about these investments in capital projects is that um, when it comes comes to climate-oriented goals, right? Um, we need to both be uh, designing and constructing new buildings that are highly energy efficient, that are uh, helping us address our, our climate goals. Uh, but we also need to recognize that existing buildings and reworking those existing buildings is actually one of the most climate friendly things we can do. So when it comes to vertical infrastructure, um, investing in those first costs as part of capital investment toward a zero carbon future that happens in both spheres, not just new, but also uh, asset preserva preservation. So, so there's uh, a lot of good work that is done through investment in the bonding bill that actually helps us toward those climate goals too. And to kind of piggyback on that a little bit, um, I've, one of the areas that we've made a ton of progress in in the construction industry in Minnesota is we've continued to attract more women and people of color into the construction workforce. And the number one retention strategy for a workforce is a job. And so um, it's very difficult for us to continue to have registered apprentices enter into our apprenticeship programs and then graduate as skilled trades workers um, if there aren't enough jobs for them to be able to go to to con continue uh, to develop those skills um, and earn what they learn. And you know, in Minnesota right now, we're very proud of the fact that about 20% of registered apprentices are people of color. Um, and so again, we need to think about investment in construction also as investment in the construction workforce. And um, that's why this means so much, particularly in the time of this economic downturn that uh, if we have large investment at that sustainable level, uh, we can continue to attract more women and people of color to the industry, continue to help them develop their careers um, 
and provide for themselves and their families. Um, absent that type of investment, we can't grow workforce. And so um, I think that, you know, along with our climate goals, we also have workforce uh, diversity and inclusion goals. In this bill, uh, the equity and bonding uh, was part of this uh, space where it includes making sure that uh, women and people of color are representative of the workforces that are working on these projects. Um, and again, because these projects provide good wages and good benefits to workers, um, these are really the type of investments that we want to be making because they meet a lot of our values um, and, and invest in our infrastructure. So I just, I think we can't, we, we, we have to think about this as, as a force multiplier, if you will, in terms of these other goals that we have as a state. If I can just piggyback on that really quickly, just to, to realize uh, that, that those uh, EDI related considerations are also really true in architecture too. And the delay of this bonding bill meant that a lot of firms that otherwise would have been hiring folks who were, had just graduated from architecture school, they, they discontinued those paid internships. They couldn't afford to bring those folks on. And so we have you know, greater racial diversity in our classes of architecture, but when there's not a job on the other side of that for many months, uh, it starts to break that pipeline. Um, so, so that's where timing really matters and consistency really matters. Yeah, well, thank you. Both. Oh. Yeah. Go uh, ahead. That, I can't help myself but talk about housing a little bit and just the overall, you know, cascading economic impacts of developing uh, affordable housing. It's not only that we are in a housing crisis that has been emphasized by the pandemic. We need in Minnesota over the next uh, 20 years to build 300,000 units of all types of housing to meet the needs of our population. And every year we need to be putting 2,500 units of very low income, low rent housing into the community to make sure that we are meeting those needs as well. But the economic impact is not just the development project. We count the number of jobs in this RFP. I think the number we're saying is it's 5,700 jobs that are in the $370 million of RFP that's coming out or being awarded tomorrow or on Thursday. And that's a big deal, it's a big impact, but these are also housing developments for a lifetime. And so for the people who live there, it's an access to an affordable place to live, um, which is good for their employer, which is good for their community, school, um, stability of their community. And these things are really important from an economic development perspective. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to housing and how we play in the economic uh, development and sustainability world. And we're certainly very cognizant of that as we look at what resources go into meeting our needs in the housing world. Yeah, and Rachel, would you say the uh, need for more affordable and workforce housing is, is just as important in greater Minnesota as it is in the Metro? And what are the needs out there um, statewide? Is this really a statewide issue? Oh, absolutely. We. Um, put at least 40% of our resources into greater Minnesota communities every year and um, could be more. We talk to employers, we talk to cities, to communities. If you look at our legislature and everyone who's um, representing greater Minnesota, housing is an issue on their platform. And um, it's, you know, quality of housing, preservation of the housing that's already there, homeownership opportunities. There are a number of communities in greater Minnesota where uh, new construction home ownership just doesn't happen in the private market. 
And so the little light incentives that we can do with the bonding resources and with other resources make a huge difference for those communities and seeing their housing stock improved and their housing stock uh, created. So it's um, across the state and pretty universally accepted so that it is a need everywhere. Well, and I know a big part of the bonding too, like with the University of Minnesota, for example, uh, a big chunk of, of their bonding take goes to asset preservation. And uh, you, you touched, uh, Mary Margaret, you touched on that a little bit, just the importance of sustainability and climate and, and making buildings more efficient, things of that nature. Um, that, uh, does anyone want to speak to the, uh, just the, the asset preservation aspect of these uh, investments and, and just kind of what it means to um, have more uh, sustainable buildings and, and better functioning buildings, uh, whether it's for U of M classroom or, or um, any other project type for that matter. I'll just note that, um, you know, again, buildings, the construction of buildings, the operation of buildings is one of the biggest drivers of climate change, one of the biggest. And so it's an area where every building type needs to start having um, investments in climate oriented um, uh, design features be part of it. And, and one of the great challenges actually is, is in affordable housing because the need for the number of units is so great uh, and there hasn't been the level of investment needed there, that margin around first costs is something that often gets left you know, uh, aside in, in just trying to meet those, 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 those needs that you know, one in four households in Minnesota pay more than they can afford for housing. I mean, that's, that's, that's a need that is, is here now. It's a need that's going to continue as the population of our state grows because of climate migration. We've got a lot of work to do here. And um, every building type needs to have those climate-oriented design features, climate-oriented construction processes, and then operation and maintenance over time be baked in to the way that we fund and the way that we, we think about all this. Yeah, great, great point. And um, I guess just we're getting a little bit close to the end of the hour here. I was wondering if anyone has any parting thoughts or any would like to touch on anything that maybe I didn't think to ask about or um, any, anything else as we get close to wrapping up here. I guess I would just echo that, um, you know, while obviously three of us represent advocacy groups and, and Rachel is, uh, you know, an incredibly strong advocate for affordable housing in Minnesota. I think I would like to just stress and lessons learned uh, to Laura's point um, that, that individual organizations um, can advocate and be really strong representatives of their own membership. But really where, when you come to something like a bonding bill, when you come to something that is so broad reaching and, and statewide and has such big scope, that really uh, building, developing and building and uh, utilizing the work of a coalition um, is incredibly important. And I think, frankly, that was one of the reasons why we were more successful this year than we've ever been before is because we had support from the state. We had legislators who were incredibly engaged and committed, um, but we also had this broad reaching coalition of folks who saw that this was the right thing to do. 
And I, again, as a lesson learned about why we got the biggest bonding bill in history, I think that is the biggest takeaway for us. One thing I would just note is that um, the AEC industry is a system, right? And, and the bonding bill supports the whole of that system when there's funding from pre-design through construction and asset preservation. Uh, and this bonding bill served the system. And, um, and that's great. It can serve the system even better if there is regularity and consistency in how it's done uh, on, that, on that governance side. And I would just acknowledge, um, in addition to the good work by all of the advocacy organizations and groups, you know, the legislature, they, they pulled through and it was not an easy decision for a number of legislators, frankly, um, to, to vote for uh, such, such a large bill. And a lot of them pulled through, um, not to get into insider baseball or anything too much, but you know, as someone who works at the Capitol, you always wanna have your vote count before you go into a vote. And most of us had a range when it came to the vote count. It was not, oh, we know exactly what the number is gonna be. It was a range um, because, and that's for a variety of reasons, but the point is, is that it wasn't an easy vote for some legislators and they ended up listening to each other. They listened to uh, their constituencies, um, which was just vital. And to some of our earlier points too, the, the entire bonding package did actually include some tax relief and some federal conformity um, with, some, with some codes for small businesses and farmers. So that was also part of these other conversations, even within the bonding bill getting passed. Um, so I just wanna give kudos to the, the legislative uh, leadership and everyone on the committees um, that, that they, they kept taking calls, they kept replying to emails, um, they kept at it and they did get it across the finish line. Um, so that needs to, um, I think, just be emphasized and continuously acknowledged. And we'll absolutely. be coming back. <laughs> absolutely, no, Laura, you make it exactly, you're absolutely right. Like we can advocate all we want, but really the legislature has to pass this bill and they have to do it in a bipartisan way. And they, they did, they delivered a really strong bill. Yeah, and to your earlier point, uh, Jessica, about uh, just providing work opportunities and the whole workforce development issue, of course, has been huge in um, the construction industry and getting a more diverse workforce, um, that sort of thing. And of course, to to recruit those workers, you need work. So it's that just is, um, I think, a, a, a big benefit of the bonding bill that, that could have really uh, long-term be a transformational change perhaps for the construction industry to get these kinds of investments. So um, it's really good to see that. Um, did you have any final thoughts also, Rachel? Oh, I'll echo. I'm really proud of Minnesota. I'm proud of this October decision. And um, it's been, the pandemic has been so hard on low-income people, people experiencing homelessness. So it's a, a week where we get to tell people that we've reserved a lot of resources for them. 
and that we are going to make these uh, developments happen across the state. We'll be doing a big announcement Thursday, 1.30. I think it's on YouTube, <laughs> pandemic life, but um, just really, really proud. I love talking to our colleagues in other states who are interested in what we do in Minnesota and can just gloat a little bit about how much this state invests in affordable housing and in the quality of our communities. So um, just to, to echo that, I'm very proud. Great, and we'll look forward to that announcement on Thursday. I know it's always an exciting thing to see those uh, projects moving forward. And, and so great, great news that that's coming up. So, um, well, well, thank you again, everybody for, for joining us today. I thought it was a really good discussion and very informative and um, appreciate all your comments. I, I, I thought there was some great insight there from, from every one of you. So um, appreciate it. And um, I hope we can stay in touch and um, learn uh, as, as, we, as we learn more about the, um, the impacts and the benefits of this, these investments going forward. So. So thank you everybody for being part of this panel. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for, for your time and focus on this, Brian. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.